Hello and welcome to The Back Half, the New Statesman's Culture Podcast with me, Tom. And me, Kate. And we have a special guest this week, our film critic, Ryan Gilby. Hello, Ryan. Hi, Tom. Kate and Ryan, did you have any Halloween adventures yesterday? Well, fittingly, I actually saw Halloween on Halloween. Okay. Um, well, that's so handy because apparently we're going to talk about that <laughs> we later. Are. We are going to talk about it. And it was near the uh, Angel Hire, which is the only kind of famous costume shop in London and there was a little queue of people outside it getting scary outfits which was nice because then I kind of feel we're getting more and more like America when I see that but but we'll really be like America when we don't have to wear scary things won't we because friends of mine have dressed as Hall and Oates for Halloween who's in Brooklyn <laughs> yeah they've dressed amazingly as Hall and Oates so I think that's when we'll fully be Americanized when we it's don't... true there's no the the, the rule there is it's just fancy just dress, dress right yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Um... I mean Hall and Oates that's quite horrific the mother <laughs> and the moustache but still it's technically not horror <laughs> I went to uh, an evening of readings of experimental literature no. at Goldsmiths University uh, for the Goldsmiths Prize. Were they um, spooky readings? Um, they they weren't. There was there was there was nothing spooky about it other than the um, the ride home on the overground where you just get that kind of quite comical sight of like just people slumped slumped in their chair in like full kind of skeleton <laughs> face face paint or like bloody bloody clothes or sitting next to a couple um we had quite a big fight in our house about who was going to be the skeleton and who was going to be the witch ah yeah which had been lined up wow. it'd be lined up for a week that um so who won you or your my wife? son was going to my <laughs> son was going to be the my son wanted to be the witch right progressive fine yeah, yeah basic witch um and um my daughter was going to be the skeleton and then this is classic this is classic for my son on the last day he just flipped it and said he wanted to be the really? skeleton does he have one of those uh, my brother had a um all in, all black kind of lycra suit with glow in the dark bones on it he had an all in one yeah 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 right yeah they presumably make adult ones as well <laughs> i guess so i guess so i'd struggled to fit into uh, into john's um <laughs> But um, yeah, all was well there. That, that <laughs> the Ryan was like, was it you or your wife that wants to be the witch? <laughs> best to ask. My brother, my brother built a replica of the booth from Big, you know, that grants the wish for the little boy to turn into Tom Hanks. Well, he doesn't wish to turn into Tom Hanks. He wishes to be. <laughs> my, my Halloween wish is that I turn into Tom Hanks, just not in Forrest Gump. Please. He built the booth. Yeah, he That's built brilliant. a booth. And, his, and he dressed his, up as it. Yeah. No, he, no, <laughs> That would be something. No, his wife sat inside and was like the fortune teller. Brilliant. This is for a party. Or something, yeah, is for the Halloween Amazing. party. Amazing. And what did I do? I went to see a scary movie. <laughs> How can we live up to that? So we are going to be talking about um, the new Halloween film. Was it? Is it just called Halloween? It's called In Halloween one of those kind of reboot, isn't it? reboot ways. Yeah, yeah. just Halloween. It's confident gesture, just calling it Halloween. Um, and then we're going to be hearing from some of the uh, spookily experimental writer. I mean, they're not. <laughs> Experimental is a, is a terrible word. It's a banned word. Um, we're going to be hearing from the writers shortlisted for the 2018 Goldsmiths Prize, which is uh, run in association with the New Statesman. And we will have, as usual, our non-anniversary uh, anniversary of a non-significant uh, cultural event. Speaking of banned words, we hmm. found out today in our editorial meeting that the word massive is banned in the New Statesman. Although weirdly, we then had a conversation about massive attack and I was wondering if we do cover them, will we have to rename them huge attacks? Huge attacks. We're allowed huge and we're, we're, not, we're not even allowed vast, but massive, it has to apply specifically to mass apparently. So it's a lazy thing to say massive unemployment. It, this has always been, I've known this for a long time because this was the case at the Times as well, but Weirdly, for 
if you're ever writing for comic effect, massive is inherently funny mm. and none of the other words are. Yeah. So I used to have big arguments with sub-editors who would take massive out, out of kind of uh, funny, mm. funny columns and replace it with large. Do we have a, is the list quite long of our band words? I they just come up, it. don't they? I, haven't, we, I don't know if we've actually got a printout of it, but there's a few like famous is not allowed, is it? Or well, famously, 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 yeah. yeah. And yeah. legendary and things like yeah, that. Yeah, legendary. Like iconic Anything that's yeah. kind of slightly a weakener to right, the word right, that right. comes after it. But um, I always thought that monumental is funny in the way that massive is funny because right. it builds up even more. Yeah. Monumental prick. Yeah. And on that bombshell, she said, no, she did. She looked straight into my eyes and made a hand gesture. So Halloween, Halloween 2018, but it is just literally called Halloween. Just Halloween, back to basics. So this is, I mean, I know they're they're pretending that um, a lot of the Halloweens in between never happen, but how many have there been in total? Do we know? There have been... I think there were six or seven sequels, including H2O. Which, which was big, great. Which was great. And the big one in 1998, it kind of, I mean, people weren't using the word reboot then, but it was, it did reboot uh, the series. Yeah. And it had, who was, it was, was, um, who was the rapper who was in it? Oh, yeah. I know Paul Joe was making a lot of films around then, so I think it was, I'm thinking it might have been him. But might have been him. It had a kind of, yeah, it was very kind of youth skewed. Yeah. And um, it was it was quite exciting. I remember it being lots of fun. Although within those kind of six or seven sequels, there was also one Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, which interestingly had nothing to do with Michael Myers or really? Halloween. Yeah. yeah, it was a complete separate story. Yeah. Um, in the similar way, you know, uh, Cat People and Curse of the Cat People, the second film had nothing to do with the first uh, apart from the people who made it. Um, yeah, so I thought that was interesting. It went right off. Yes, um, yeah. And then there was a remake by Rob Zombie and a sequel to the remake. It got very confusing. Because Jamie Lee Curtis was in H2O, wasn't yeah, she? Yeah, she? And was. she was a very ballsy character and Josh mm. Hartnett was her son. Yeah, but we have to forget everything that happened we have in to those forget films it because this, this just acts as if there was the first film, 1978, and then this takes place 40 years later. And nothing that we know from the sequels actually happened. Yeah. So can you just remind us of the premise of the, the, the first movie? Briefly? Well, it's it's one of those, um, I don't know about you, Ryan, but I still think it's the, probably the best horror film ever it's made. It's incredible. <laughs> I watched it last year and it was still yeah. terrifying. Yeah, because it's, it's so simple, isn't it? So simple, so effective, and also such a great use of um, of the widescreen, of widescreen cinematography, that thing of it having lots of empty space on screen so you never know where the shock is going to yeah. arise from. It reminds me of that thing of like when you, when you play tennis and badminton, you're told to look for the empty spaces in the court so you can wrong <laughs> foot your, your opponent. And it's it's that, you never know where, you know, which window is the face going to pop up. At. Yeah, and against um, that, you also always have the, uh, it taking place on Halloween. So you have the the wide shots of the the reveries going on and, the, and people in their yeah. costumes and not knowing um, who's safe and who isn't because he can just walk walk into the scene and he might just be somebody in a and scary mask the way somebody else. So simple else and so terrifying. And also that great score that um, John Carpenter does a lot of his own scores, uh, most of his own scores, I think. And yeah, that, that kind of just really insidious, crunchy, horrible electronic score that he has for it, um, which is, is is used in the new film as well. Um, so yeah, there's no there's no beating it really. For me, it's, um, he the, the premise of it basically is just a guy called Michael Myers, who at the age of six stabbed his sister, um, was very mentally disturbed and then comes back mm. as an adult and attacks Jamie Lee Curtis, who is babysitting at that point. That's right, that's right. Which I, so he's, yeah, this is like 16 or 15 or 16 years after he, he kills his sister. Yeah, he comes back to, the, to that neighbourhood. And it's interesting because you wrote in the magazine a few weeks ago, Kate, about um, 
about being tired of all this psychology for villains in Disney films. So, you know, Maleficent isn't actually yeah. uh, a bad witch. She's just misunderstood and she's actually got really, really sweet impulses and things like that. And and w- weren't you kind of making a pill for let's have some... Yeah. Kind of, and Michael Myers is the ultimate. Yeah, he's got no backstory. He's got no voice. You never see his face. Mm. And it's just like, it's just brilliantly done because he he's wearing this mask that is... The urban legend is that this mask is basically a William Shatner mask, right? From oh, that's right. Star I thought Trek. it was Nixon, but you're right. It's Shatner. It's yeah, a Shatner yeah, one yeah. that they found somewhere, and then they they did the first uh, Halloween, and when it came to doing the second, they couldn't locate the old mask or something like that, and then they just called up some costume stores with a serial number and realised it had been like a kind of really shitty William Shatner, <laughs> Shatner mask that he goes around in, and he's also got. I, I think he's got quite a. Um, a tender kind of name, Michael Myers, and they refer to him as Michael all the way yeah, through it. So you yeah. never, he's an absolute monster. You never see him and you never hear him, but it's like, you know, come on, Michael, come come away from there, come with me now. And it's like a strange thing for a villain to be called Michael. It is really strange. And it's good, isn't it? Because he, because he doesn't say anything. So obviously he hasn't got any catchphrases or anything like that. Mm. You know, it's not a kind of Schwarzenegger, you know, I'll be back kind of thing. Um, in a way, you're right, everybody else's reactions they do kind of, they make us fear him, obviously, but also they do kind of humanise him in a way. Yeah. He's just this blank slate. And you see that really interestingly in the um, in the first scene of the new film, where he is completely still uh, in, a, in a prison yard and ev- all the other inmates around him are going absolutely nuts and like they're terrified <laughs> and they're kind of, he's just this blank slate. Yeah. And this, we're scared because everybody else is scared. And you don't see his face at that point because he hasn't he hasn't refound his mask and sort of got back in the game as it were. But that's got in touch with his inner child. Yeah, yeah, it's a hilarious opening scene where um it's it's so stylized where he's basically um in a prison yard with all these like freaks and weirdos who are howling like dogs and they're all chained up and they're yeah. kind of they're they're feeding off this strange uh evil energy from yeah. him and going like and things <laughs> like that. It's just absolutely ludicrous. Have they ever tried cuz I I watched the first uh, film for the first time two days ago. Um, so I'm very, I'm very fresh from this. What did you think? I, um, because I instinctively resist horror films generally as a genre. Um, so it, it took me a little while to, to adjust to it. But um, yeah, I thought it was kind of amazing for, for the reasons that you've said. It also, I don't know, may, maybe there's precedent for this, but it kind of um, really nailed that eeriness of suburbia as well um that um you realize you've seen in loads of subsequent films that the way of making kind of cozy white picket american streets really sort of terrifying Mm. but the uh the thing i was i was sort of grappling with was trying to work out sort of logic behind or you know some sort of motivation behind behind the killings and i was reading what critics were writing around the time and the, the fact that, you know, well, does he pick on people who are kind of sexually promiscuous or... But I was just wondering in the subsequent films, have they kept this very pure sort of motiveless idea or have they, do they ever try and, fle- have they ever tried to sort of flesh him out? I haven't seen all the sequels and remakes of various things, but as far as I know, you don't really go into psychology because one of the interesting things about the new film is that there are two characters who are they're both British, aren't they? Those reporters. Yeah. Um, and they're looking for the psychology. Right. They want the story yeah. behind it's very it. Modern, yeah. yeah, exactly. That's they want, quite nice. They want the we're story. long-form journalists, they say. <laughs> do they? <laughs> yeah, they do. Yeah. We're investigative journalists. We want we're making to a podcast. <laughs> yeah, making a podcast. <laughs> Reflects well on us here today. Um, but yeah, they're, they're saying this to, to Laurie, Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah. And, and, you know, we want to understand him. Um, 
and she's saying, well, wait, wait, he's, he killed five people and we have to understand him yeah. as a human being. And it, it reminded me of that chilling thing that John Major said after the murder of James Bolger. Do you remember when he said, we need to understand a little less and condemn a little more? Wow. It all yeah. seems to be like playing into those, those, the fears we have of, of not regarding these people as monsters. Yes. You know, it's very easy to say. I, I quite like that um, part of her. Uh, so basically, she's been sort of holed up in this compound um, since the original attack, getting more and more paranoid and arming herself with millions of guns and, and sort of. She's sp- like Grandma Rambo. She's Grandma she? Rambo, yeah. But it's true that she's she's not. Um, she wants to lure him, as it, the film develops, she realizes she wants to lure him back, doesn't she, in order to actually kill him. Mm. That's the point. She wants. She doesn't want him in prison, and she's praying for him to get released. So there's that great line where somebody says. That's a dangerous thing to pray for because, of course, he does have this big prison break and he crashes this this bus. Yeah, it's and kind of a seduction, body. isn't it, between them? It's like she yeah, wants, yeah, she wants him back to kind of settle this, but not with too much of the corny kind of "we're not so different, you and I" crap that you get in these things at all. Sure, it's just sure. she just basically wants to to dispatch him finally. So they've kept the character of Myers kind of fairly pure and unadulterated. But what else have they done to it to bring it up to 2018? What feels quite now about it? Um, well, just the effort that they've gone to. Um, to make the characters or victims, as most of them become, um, actually be likable and interesting. Like there are there are a couple of scenes in particular involving children. There's a, there's a little boy who's uh, driving in a truck with his dad, and they're having a conversation. His dad wants to spend more time with him, and the boy is saying, "But I want to do my dance class," uh, which is quite an interesting <laughs> little bit of characterization. And also an, another little boy later in the film who's um, with his babysitter, and they they have kind of. Um, uh, yeah, they're kind of like verbally sparring, aren't they? Together, and that's all. That's all really interesting stuff, and it makes you. It just makes you fear for them. You don't want these people to get slaughtered, um, and they're a kind of like awkward teenage boys who kind of meet the sharp end of uh, Michael Myers' knife. And, Did you notice um, that bit where he doesn't, because you, you kind of expect him to be endowed with some sort of moral compass and you hope he's not going to be because that's not the point. But there's one point where he doesn't stab a baby. Do you remember? That's right. <laughs> that's right. He, walk, he just walks He does kill it. an eight-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> he's got standards. You've got to draw he's the line standards. somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was very um, a very modern moment when one of the teenagers says something like, look, within the scheme of things, with what's going on at the world at the moment, a guy stabbing a couple of people is no that's big deal. Really yeah, you're right. That's really 2018. I think that's definitely the mark of um, the director and co-writer, David Gordon Green. Um, I mean, I would, he's not as good a filmmaker as Richard Linklater, but I think he's got a similar sensibility in that he takes uh, situations that might be kind of trashy or basic or unpromising and kind of invests them with sort of conscience in a way. I mean, uh, he started out as an art house director. And um, and then kind of took a sharp move into the mainstream with Pineapple Express, if you remember that, with James yeah. Franco and Seth Rogen, and has gone on to make like quite a lot of these stoner comedies. But they're always really interested in their characters. They're mm. not just kind of the same old jokes. Um, and um, yeah, and his whole his whole background, his whole passion is eighties kind of straight to video gory action films, <laughs> um, and he kind of is always paying homage to stuff like that. Um, and I re- could really feel his personality in the yeah. film, especially in that line you j- you just quoted. About. What did you think about the um, about the mother daughter relationships at the heart of it as well? Yeah, that's really interesting too because you can see, I think you can see from fairly on, fairly early on, where we're heading. It's going to be a kind of three generations of the Strode family, um, kind of uniting against Michael Myers. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, women were always well, usually the victims in in slasher movies, and you had kind of you know, this idea of the final girl, the last woman re- remaining who would confront the killer. Um, but the idea of having three generations uh, of women, I think, at the end of at the end of the film is quite a radical one. With this totally dispensable dad as well. He's, I, my favourite <laughs> line that the dad says is like, he says something like, leave me to protect my family. 
I know jujitsu. <laughs> <laughs> This is this is the opposite to one of the uh, recent, probably the most recent horror film, or vaguely horror film I saw, which was that um, A Quiet Place, which we discussed on the podcast, where Mm. the father is, you know, or learns every survival technique, and you know, (laughs) but it's still weirdly useless, right? Yeah, I guess he is. Yeah, yeah, but then he's kind of idealised it, doesn't he? Yeah. Well, maybe I shouldn't spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it. But anyway, anyway, anyway. Um, yeah, I thought there were lots of really, also, I mean, you say about 2018 stuff, there were lots of really interesting little tweaks and twists on the formula, which anyone who's seen the first Halloween will recognise. There's that famous shot in the first film where, um, I think, Tom, you've seen it more recently mm. than us, but but Michael Myers is shot and falls off the balcony. Yeah. Is that right? Well, there's a balcony scene here. Sounds like Romeo and Juliet. There's a balcony scene here that plays with that, isn't there, if you remember? Um, and also the credit sequence. The credit sequence of the original film shows a pumpkin burning yes. on the left-hand side of the screen, the yeah. flame inside. Well, here we've got a pumpkin like re-inflating after having yeah. kind of collapsed <laughs> uh, next to the credits and and um, kind of deflate, you know, it's wound backwards, the footage. It's great. Kind of it's a really long intro credit sequence. I, when did... Um... Um, when did they stop putting so you know when did they stop from the long credits films with, I can with tell credits. you exactly when it stops Brilliant. because I remember I noticing it um, 1984 okay. Ghostbusters <laughs> really <laughs> because all the, 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 the credit sequence of the original Ghostbusters is just the Ghostbusters sign right. and there are no credits yeah. yeah, you get a little burst of the music and then it just moves on yeah. and I remember being struck at the when I saw that like wait 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 yeah, we've yeah. been cheated um, and, <laughs> and actually people like Quentin Tarantino and Edgar Wright have, have moved Back to doing elaborate. I remember when Edgar Wright screened, I think he screened Scott Pilgrim to Quentin Tarantino. And Tarantino was like, no, 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 wait, you haven't got a credit sequence. You need a big epic credit sequence. And then that ended up being one of the best parts of the film. Wow, I wonder why they changed it. I wonder if it's like... uh, well, we'd have to find out how much it costs to do a credit yeah. sequence. Yeah. I don't know. Or do they think people aren't going to be ready yet or they're getting their popcorn or some, well, some cynical reason Also, like do you that? think it's uh, short attention spans? Because, you know, there's that thing on um, streaming services like Netflix where you have a button yeah. to skip the to credits. To skip the credits, yeah. it might yeah. be. Skip the yeah. credits. Saul Bass would be turning in his <laughs> I still find it, I was wondering whether I found it scary because I was quite, I was thinking about like the way we view things now and I was kind of checking my phone quite a lot during it. <laughs> like that. Hey, like, you <laughs> Kate, were you honestly checking the phone in the cinema? I was checking my phone in the cinema. I would have and called I the thought, manager on people. And then I thought, I'm not scared, I'm not scared. And But then in the middle of the film, I had to go for a wee. Oh my God, I was terrified because I was in the Odeon Covent Garden and it was an afternoon screening and it was completely deserted. And I went out this corridor and I was suddenly stuck in this like labyrinth of back staircases and fire exits and things. And just, because there's a whole scene in it where like someone gets killed in a toilet stall, right? right. And I went into this old school Odeon type, you know, uh, toilet with a big makeup bar and things like that. And it was just completely deserted. And I just thought I was going to hear this plodding of footsteps coming. I was really scared. You've got a script right there. You need to pitch that. <laughs> and then when I got back into the auditorium, I was so relieved that there were other people. But then I thought one of them could just put on a Michael Myers mask and stab me in the neck. All this went through my head. Well, look, I would have done it if I took you checking your phone. So beware. <laughs> um, we're not allowed to ruin anything, are we? But I did feel a bit cheated because I felt it was setting up for a sequel at the end, which nowadays I just find like I want to get my money back when I can see that they're making a sequel. So I'm like, I, want, I yeah, can see this film. It kind of comes with the territory with a film like this, don't you think? I mean, because there have been this never-ending like proliferation of of sequels, and even as you, as you said before, when even when he's been killed in previous episodes... He still just comes back. So, um, but anyone who hasn't seen it should stay right, right, right to the very yeah. end of the credits because there is an extra little. I mean, it's not like thing. it's not like the Marvel films where you get a whole scene, but there's a little kind of 
hint at the end. Yeah, it did remind me a bit the the ending of, of the bit in Austin Powers when um, he rigs up that sort of sharks with lasers on their heads <laughs> bit and and his son goes like, what, you're not even going to stay to watch him being yeah. eaten by the sharks with lasers? <laughs> I will leave you in an easily escapable situation. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that because I was really, really holding out for a, for a Mike Myers, Michael Myers joke in this. Yes. <laughs> because... To mention Edgar Wright again, there was one in Baby Driver yeah. where, where where the criminals, the bank robbers are sent out to get their Michael Myers masks and they all come back with <laughs> Austin Powers masks. Oh. <laughs> but maybe that would have been just a little bit too meta for this Halloween. I guess you've got to be really careful with your level of, you've got to pitch your level of in-jokes right, haven't you? You, so you, don't, you don't kind yeah. of completely deflate it, but there's enough sort of nods and winks. For the and it was never a funny film. That's what I like about it. It is, it is dark and and claustrophobic and serious and you don't want it to like turn into scream which was itself commenting on those yeah. those films yeah you get nervous laughter after each scare but yeah there's yeah. definitely no there's yeah. no kind of outright jokes are there? so halloween is in cinemas join us today during the jeep celebration event right now get 20 percent below msrp for an average of 15,178 under msrp on the purchase of a 2023 jeep grand cherokee overland 4xe or summit 4xe not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Wow. Yeah. Last night, I was at Goldsmiths University for an event with all six writers shortlisted for this year's Goldsmiths Prize. That's the prize which is run in association with the New Statesman. And its mission is to identify and reward everything that's ambitious, innovative and risk-taking in the novel, in the British and Irish novel, to be specific. Uh, This year's prize is judged by Elif Shafak, Nicholas Lezard, Deborah Levy and Adam Mars-Jones. And as usual, the shortlist is a really good primer of uh, what's most interesting in this year's fiction. The list features Rachel Cusk for Kudos, the third novel in the trilogy that began in 2014 with Outline. Will Eaves for Murmur, a novel about a gay mathematician based on Alan Turing. Guy Gunaratne for In Our Mad and Furious City, which follows five characters on a London estate over 48 hours. Gabriel Jospovici for The Cemetery in Barnes, an examination of a life lived in three locations and told in three interweaving voices. Olivia Lang for Crudo, a rapid-fire piece of autofiction set during the summer of 2017. And Robin Robertson for The Long Take, which was also shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize. That's a verse novel following a D-Day veteran pacing the streets of Manhattan, New York, and San Francisco. Before the event, we met with the writers and asked them to talk about and read a little bit from their books. The winner will be announced at Goldsmiths on November the 14th. Until then, here is your little guide to the 2018 Goldsmiths Prize shortlist. I'm Rachel Cusk and my novel Kudos has been shortlisted for the Goldsmiths Prize. Kudos is the third book in a trilogy. Um, The books share a sort of distinctive form um, in that they're written by a sort of inside out rule of narrative where everything is on the outside and um, nothing is on the inside. Uh, They have a narrator who sort of embodies this principle by being very silent and invisible and um, 
hearing really the, the stories of people's lives, but, but it, it isn't, uh, I mean, that's sort of one way of describing it. Um, I mean, to me, it doesn't feel like that particularly. It feels like a, a sort of grasping of, um, I guess, an innate human sense of form and uh, narrative. And that's what, what the book uses to sort of tell itself. Uh, well, I'm the bridesmaid here. This is my third <laughs> time of being shortlisted. At this point, I feel we've grown old together, so you know, I'm very pleased to be here again. And it's good uh, to have a prize that uh, applauds the exercise of artistic freedom, um, which is what we're all here for. So, yeah, I'm very pleased. Hello, my name's um, Will Eaves, uh, and I've written this book, Murmur. Uh, which takes as its um, point of departure the last few years in the life of the logician and computer science pioneer, Alan Turing, who was um, convicted of gross indecency with another male in 1952 and sentenced to organotherapy, which was a sort of punitive hormonal regimen, um, effectively a kind of a very strong bromide, which changed his body, changed his mind too, um, and the book is an attempt to understand how he might have responded as a material scientist to that transformation. So I'm going to read just a little bit from an extract of fictional journal, um, which bookends the novel. I think empathy is a treated, enhanced version of sympathy, but I am not sure it exists. We can't be in someone else's emotional shoes. We don't ever feel what they're feeling. What makes us cry or makes our heart race is probably just this intense awareness of, not quite, of being so close to feeling what they're feeling. I'd go so far as to say that empathy is a sort of artifice. And what, one might ask, is wrong with that? I'm Guy Gunaratna, I'm the writer of In Our Mad and Furious City. Um, and In Our Mad and Furious City is a book set on a housing estate in northwest London. Um, and it follows four voices from the estate after a terrorist incident involving the killing of an off-duty soldier. Um, the voices are written in distinct vernacular. Um, the three young contemporary voices of young men um, are written in road dialect, um, sometimes called MLE, Multicultural London English. Um, and the two older characters, one is Carolyn, who speaks to her experience in Northern Ireland in Belfast during the Troubles. Um, and it's written in Northern Irish dialect. Um, and Nelson, who does, who's an elderly character, who speaks to his experience as a, uh, a new immigrant in London in the 1950s during the Notting Hill race riots. And his voice is written in West Indian Patois. The, the book, I guess, is um, really sort of looks at extremism um, and the nature of extremism, how it manifests itself over time. And each of the voices have to confront um, their own compulsions towards extremes in a city like London, which is quite an extreme city in itself. There were things that I learned to call fury as a younger. Fury was a fearsome drum some hungry and hot temper, ill spirit or madness that never touched us for long but followed our bodies for time. See London. This city taints its young. If you're from here, you'd know, innit? All our faces were pinched sour, 
even the good few I spent my early way with, we were all born into the menace from day dot. These were the hidden violences, day-long deaths that snuffed out our small and limited futures. We grew up around these towers, so struggle was a standard echo in our speech, in thought, in action. But it was only after the release of that one video, clip from a phone of a witness, that everyone else saw the truth. The image on every news channel and paper, a black boy had killed an off-duty soldier. Soldier boy, we called him. The black younger had stopped soldier boy and struck him down with a cleaver. Then he wrapped his body in a black cloth and strung him up from a road sign. Stuff was dark. Darkest, because it happened in a space so familiar. In our city, on road and in broad daylight. The sound of the black boy's voice came next, shouting into the camera about the infidel, the sinful Kufar. It was on radio and television, an endless loop. He called himself the Hand of Allah, but to us, he looked as if he just rolled out the same school gates as us. He had the same train as we wore spoke the same road slang we used. The blood was not what shocked us. For us, it was his face like a mirror, reflecting our confused and frightened hearts. Violence made this city. Those living, born and raised, grew up with it like an older brother. And on that final day when flames licked the domes of our painted mosque, we were all far beyond saving. Fury was like a fever in the air, a corrupt mass of bodies pulsing together in pain and rhetoric. Mahajirun were herding our people along August Road and had us stand on the burnt earth like a testament. There was violence in our brotherhood, that much is clear, though we never knew how much of that violence came from us on the road beneath our feet. We were London's scowling youth, and as siblings of rage, we were never meant to stray beyond the street. We might not have known it with our eyes so alight, but it was true. A miseducation is proof, isn't it? Those school corridors were like cold chambers. Anyone who went to St. Mary's would attest. Our bodies were locked for verbal assaults, our words clipped and surging and with our own code and fuck anyone else who disagreed, you know? Violence shattered our language and our lines tagged the streets. They'd read us on walls in open seam and dim lamplight. We'd cotch and park benches, waste air, sock mouthed and bound, stupid of our fates the entire time. Our tongues were so soaked in our defenses we hoped only to outlast the day. Just look at how we spoke to one another. In it though, my man and pussy oh. Our friendships we called bloods and our homes we called our ends. We reveled in throwing crafted curses at our mothers and receiving hard slaps to heads. Our combs cut lines in our hair and we scarred our eyebrows with blades. We became warrior tribes of man them, slave kings and palm swiping cubs we were. Our parents knew nothing and most others most others only knew us from the noise made at the back of the buses. Close without touch. That was the only love permitted, though it was deeply felt among our own. We smoked weed together, borrowed idioms and shopped American verses. In our caustic speech, we threw out platitudes and our guts our facedy wit. It was like we lived upon jagged teeth in the dark in this bone-cold London city. A young nation of mongrels, constantly measuring ourselves against what we were supposed to be, which was what I couldn't tell you. For those of us who had an elsewhere in our blood, some foreign origin, we had richer court colours and ancient callings to hear. Fight with, more likely, and fight for, a push-pull of ancestry and meaning. For me, that meant Pakistan and its local mosques, which in Neesden meant going mosque and dodging Mahajirun. For my brothers on a state, they were from all over. Jamaicans, Irish Pikeys, Nigerians, Ghanaians, South Indians, Bengalis. Proper Commonwealth kids, isn't it?
Even the Arab squaddies from UAE. We'd all spy those private school boys from Belmont and Mill Hill and we'd wonder, how would it have felt to come from the same story? To be molded out of one thing and not of many. There was nothing more foreign to us than that, nothing more boring and pale to imagine. Ours was a language, a dubbing of noise, while theirs was a one note, void of new feeling and any sense of place. Place was our own, this place. And whether we heard the whispers of our older roots never mattered. What mattered for us was the present, terse and cold, where we would make our own coarse music. This was where we found our young madnesses after all, on road, or rather between the roads we knew and the world we felt we could never hope to claim. So it was like watching our faces made foul when we saw that video, when that soldier boy was butchered by a homegrown brother. That's when we knew we were all lost to the ruin. And they called it terrorism, but terrorism never felt so close. Even when we saw the madness rise, when the hijab lady was slashed in a car park in Bricky, or when Michael was knifed in North, the swell only peaked after that soldier boy's killing. And I think about why it had to be a younger that done it. Why it was that when we saw the eyes of the black boy with the dripping blade, we felt closer to him than the soldier boy slain in the street. But now I know this city and its sickness of violence and mean living. These things come in sharp ruptures that don't discern. It was the fury. Horror curled into horror. Violence trailing back for centuries. I heard as much in mosque and from rude boys on road. So when the riots blew up in the square, when the Umar came out and the Union Jack burned in the June air, the terror had become unwound and lightweight. Each of us were caught in the same swirl, all held together with our own small furies in this single, mad, monstrous and lunatic city. Uh, I'm Gabriel Giuseppevici. Um, I've written a novel called The Cemetery in Barnes. It actually sprang out of a short story I'd written many, many years ago, which uh, I was quite happy with, but was very, very compressed. And I felt over the years that I needed to open it up and spread it out and let it breathe a bit more. And uh, I kept thinking about it, sketching in a few things and then leaving it. I had other things to do. And then finally, after the end of my, uh, after I'd finished the last novel of mine that Carcanet published, um, I thought, well, this is the moment. I hadn't got anything else on the books. Uh, I ought to get down to it. And this is the book. He had been living in Paris for many years. Longer, he used to say, than he cared to remember. When my first wife died, he'd explain, there no longer seemed to be any reason to stay in England. So he moved to Paris and earned his living by translating. The beauty of a translator's job, he would say, is that you can do it anywhere and you don't ever need to see your employer. When a book is done, you send it off and in due course you receive the remainder of your fee. Meanwhile, you've started on the next one. He was an old-fashioned person, still put on a jacket and tie to sit down to work, and a coat and hat when he went out. Even at the height of the Parisian summer, he never ventured out without his hat. At my age, he would say, it's too late to change. Besides, I'm a creature of habit, always was. He lived in a small apartment at the top of a peeling building in the Rue Lucrèce, behind the Pantheon. To get to it, you went through the dark, narrow Rue Saint-Julien and climbed the steep flight of steps which brought you out directly opposite the building. There were, of course, 
other ways of getting there, but this was the one he regularly used. It was how, in his mind, his little flat was linked to the outside world. I'm Olivia Lang, I'm a writer and critic, and I'm the author of Crudo, which is my first novel. It's a book about Trump and Brexit, about anxiety and love, about living at what might be the end of the world and trying to learn the skills of intimacy in a disintegrating universe. Oh, I am beyond thrilled to be shortlisted. I spent some time last night just looking through all of the previous shortlists and it's an extraordinary range of experiment and endeavor. It's people from very small presses and much more well-known writers and that kind of mix with a sort of sharing of ingenuity, um, risk-taking, beauty of language just feels unprecedented. I can't think of another prize that has that sort of range, so I'm, I'm beyond happy to be here. Cathy, by which I mean I, was getting married. Cathy, by which I mean I, had just got off a plane from New York. It was 7.45 on the 13th of May, 2017. She'd been upgraded to business. She was feeling fancy. She bought two bottles of duty-free champagne in orange boxes. That was the kind of person she was going to be from now on. Cathy was met at the airport by the man she was living with, soon to become the man she was going to marry, soon, presumably, to become the man she had married, and so on till death. In the car, the man told her that he had eaten dinner with the man she, Cathy, was sleeping with, along with the woman they both knew. They had also been drinking champagne, he told her. They laughed a lot. Cathy stopped speaking. This was the point at which her life took an abrupt turn, though in fact the man with whom she was sleeping would not break up with her for another five days on headed writing paper. He didn't think two writers should be together. Cathy had written several books, Great Expectations, Blood and Guts in High School. I expect you've heard of them. The man with whom she was sleeping had not written any books. Cathy was angry. I mean, I. I was angry. And then I got married. Uh, my name is Robin Robertson. I'm originally from the northeast coast of Scotland. But I've lived in this city, London, for most of my life. And the book that I've written is called The Long Take. And it was written because I made a decision to write about the city. Having lived in a city most of my life, but never having written about it before, I thought I would correct this uh, error of judgment. And what this is, is a story of an outsider in the city. And I wanted to return to some of the ambivalence I felt as a young Scot arriving in the seething metropolis. And that strange mixture of glamour and disgust, um, excitement and fear. Um, but rather than write about London, which seemed too close, I thought I would write about American cities. I've been traveling in the States since I was 20, and this gave me some distance. And I almost immediately decided they would have to be set 
in the post-war years when the jazz was at its best and the films were at their finest. And so it grew from there. The Outsider became um, uh, an ex-soldier, a Canadian veteran with PTSD, who couldn't return to his own island of Nova Scotia because of what he'd seen and what he'd done. And so did what many ex-servicemen did in those years. He went into the city looking for anonymity and repair. And it's his journey that forms the spine of this book uh, through streets of Manhattan to Los Angeles and San Francisco and back finally to Los Angeles, uh, where he finds in the end some form of community. And there it was, the swell and glitter of it like a standing wave, the fabled smoking ruin, the new towers rising through the blue, the ranked array of ivory and gold, the glint, the glamour of buried light as the world turned round it very slowly this autumn morning, all amazed. And it stayed there, watching as they made toward it, the truck driver and the young man, under pylons, wires, utility poles, past warehouses, container parks, deserted lots, between the long, oily marshes, landfill sites and swamps before slipping down under the Hudson and coming up on the other side to find a black wetness of streets trashed and empty and the city gone. So Ryan, just to explain to you, um, I don't think you've sat on in this part of the, part of the podcast before, but... Um, this is our non-anniversary, so we we find a a cultural event um, deep or, or indeed shallow in the seas of time, and uh, haul it out with our podcast net. I think I was here for your, it. I think I was here for your just say on no one. Did oh, you do you? one on just say no? We did. The great oh, chills. Okay, yeah. yeah, you don't need to explain them. <laughs> it's our non-anniversary, um, and this week we're going to do. Um, I had a look in the archives and discovered that it's. 30 years since uh, Enya's Orinoco Flow mm. spent three glorious weeks uh, at number one in the uh, UK top 40. Most people probably think of it as being called Sail Away. Sail Away. Or when I looked up the uh, the video earlier, um, I'm sort of more alive to YouTube uh, comments now since having seen Adam Buxton do his various kind of bug shows where he makes a big deal about people's YouTube comments and... Um, Someone admitted that uh, they'd always thought that the chorus was "Save a Whale," <laughs> which, when you listen to it again, is a really uh... well. That's partly to do with her weird um, swallowing of words, isn't it? That's the thing that always annoyed me about Enya is you can't make any of the words out. So I looked up what the words were to this. Yeah, and I was struck by how banal they are. And they're kind of overblown and also banal. So there's a line where it goes from Bissau to Palau in the shade of Avalon, from Fiji to Tiri in the Isles of Ebony. From Peru to Chebu, feel the power of Babylon. From Bali to Kali, far beneath the coral sea. And then towards the end, it goes, 
we can steer, we can near with Rob Dickens at the wheel. And he was the man at Warner Records who signed her. <laughs> so he gets a name check for signing her alongside Tracy Chapman and various other people. So she incorporates her thank yous, her acknowledgements yeah. into in the this, song. In this like, fantastical world of like the power of Babylon and the Coral Sea, you've got Rob Dickens at the wheel. But th- thank God she doesn't actually say it more clearly because it may not have sold so many copies. Maybe that's what Liz Fraser and Michael Stipe are singing about in their early <laughs> songs where we can't hear what they're saying. Isn't that the sort of thing you put in as a placeholder? and then like you know go back and rewrite lyrics here yeah. oh like, like, like yesterday being <laughs> scrambled eggs, eggs. Yeah, yeah exactly yeah um it it became ubiquitous of course like i mean i think of it as kind of uh you know more music i guess but um it did go on to soundtrack uh lots of different commercials you know the world of interior decoration it's a mm. dulux paint ad it was a big uh, american drinks ad in the states and it was included on a um Virgin compilation called Pure Moods. Pure Moods. In 1991, which I think was a huge seller. That's the um, genre they call New Age, yeah. which you don't really hear that much now, but that was big in the 80s. If you did anything that was vaguely world, it was New Age. Well, she won um, for this annual one Best New Age Performance at the 32nd Annual Grammy Awards. Is that still a category? I doubt it. What would it be called I know now? they do have thousands of categories at the Grammys, but I can't imagine they still have a New Age category. New Age is not, it's not, it's not fashionable. It's a good song. I was thinking about why it's good and it's got like three or four different melodic sections to it so there's kind of a lot going on and that when I heard it I was surprised that it was actually all those songs together I thought they were all different right. singles that Enya had released but actually they're all in one but yeah it's still a bit annoying and did that st- did it start a kind of trend of those songs so I think of that one um was it Enigma and things yeah. like that and um, that was also on the return on to pure innocence moods. on pure yeah, moods right yeah. we should get the track list thing <laughs> I mean, it's, they seem guaranteed. I called it mum music earlier, but it's mum and dad music, isn't it, really? And it was, these things always went to number one, didn't they? It's also in um, uh, South Park. Uh, there's a scene where... Who is it who's got the grandpa? Is it Kyle? I can't remember. Um, his grandpa is like a character, I can't remember. And, and he sort of he shoves Kyle into a cupboard under the stairs and says, you want to know what it's like being old? Shoves him into a cupboard under the stairs and plays Enya. <laughs> Completely in the darkness <laughs> and just hearing. Sail away, sail away. It, it, the the that pure moods thing was actually a kind of slightly odd mashup of you know it had things like the X Files theme on it right. and Michael Nyman and Enya and Enigma, but also like a a couple of like slightly cooler electronic things. So it's a kind of odd sort of world beat kind of sounds like a mashup. precursor to the chill out room. Yeah, yeah, I think I, yeah. I think it was yeah. Anyway, mm. happy 30th anniversary to Orinoco Flow. Thank you for downloading this episode of The Back Half. Uh, thanks very much, Ryan, for, for coming in and sharing it with us. Um, Thank you to Caroline Crampton, our podcast editor. Um, we'll be back in a fortnight. Uh, in the meantime, we're going to leave you... With the non-chill-out song, Pistol Jazz with Godspeed. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.